Test. Okay. Our sermon today will be taken from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. This is the word of God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that the he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them, out, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you, Tazar. It's great to be back with you this morning, friends, at Covenant City Church. I love this church. It's great to be home in Jakarta. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, please uh, remain with me in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be in this passage this morning. It's an incredibly rich passage. We're not going to go through every single part of it. We're going to go through three, I think, most significant parts of it. And um, I hope it will be a fruitful time for us today. Um, the context of this passage is absolutely important and crucial for us to remember. Right? At this time, in, in Exodus chapter 3, we've seen that the Israelites are there because Joseph led them there, and Joseph was second in command to Pharaoh. And the Israelites were, were, were saved from a famine, and that's why they were staying in Egypt. But in Exodus chapter 2 and 1, we saw that Joseph had passed away, and that Pharaoh had passed away, and a Pharaoh... It says there in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, a pharaoh that doesn't remember Joseph took rule. 
And this Pharaoh was specifically intimidated by Israel, specifically because of their number and their seeming power. And this Pharaoh wanted to get rid of them and started to become a, a, a crude and harsh taskmaster to them. And Moses was born, and out of a series of events, he was supposed to be killed because that Pharaoh wanted to kill every single son that came out of a Hebrew woman. But out of a series of unforeseeable events, Moses survived, and Moses was raised by Pharaoh's daughter herself. And Moses, at the end of chapter 2, killed an Egyptian because he saw a Hebrew man and an Egyptian person fighting. And he killed that Egyptian, and out of fear, he fleed to Midian. And there, he raised his own family, and he was tending to a flock as a shepherd. But at this time, as Moses was away, the Israelites continued to be under the, the harshness of Pharaoh. There were slaves in Egypt at this point. And God, at the end of chapter 2, says that he has saw the Israelites, and God knew. Though God was silent, though God was not acting at this point, God was watching, and he remembers his promises to the Israelite people. And he knew that he needed to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh. And chapter 3 comes at this point when God will act. God comes to Moses and God will now summon Moses to be the mediator between God and the Israelites to take the Israelites out of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's the context into which this chapter fits into the book. And there's going to be three points we're going to cover today. The first point is that we see in this passage the God who reveals himself. God reveals himself to Moses. We also see in this passage the God who was named. What is the name of God? I am who I am. What does that even mean? We're going to try to demystify that name for you today. And the third point I would bring up to you today is the God who saves. So those are the three points for this morning. The God who reveals, the God who is named, and the God who saves. With that being said, let's uh, open up again in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this incredible privilege to come before you. We realize, Lord God, that we are not worthy. We're not worthy to ascend the holy hill, Father, but instead you have descended in the Son, your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that he is the Holy One. We thank you, Lord God, that you took pity upon us and you have died in our place. We pray, Lord God, that as we go through this passage, as we understand the God who reveals, the God who is named, and the God who is saved, Father, that your Spirit will be here with us, that you would make me clear that the message would be given to us, would be heard, and would be obeyed by us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First point then, the God who reveals. Ludwig Feuerbach, he is a uh, philosopher, a German philosopher in the 19th century. In 1841, he wrote an incredibly influential and important book. It's called The Essence of Christianity. Feuerbach was an atheist. And so it's a really cool name that you could try to pronounce to each other later. It's Feuerbach. Right, you got to have that guttural at the end. He wrote The Essence of Christianity in 1841, and what he argued in that book, in this incredibly controversial, influential book, it's still being read today in universities all throughout the world, in Religion 101 or what have you not. And he argued in that book that the essence of Christianity, and in fact, the essence of religion, he would argue, is that man, humanity, projects all of their favorite ideals onto an imaginary divine being. He says, there's no such thing as God. God, instead, 
is whatever man thinks humanity should become. What do we all value as human beings? He would say, we, we all value goodness. We all value justice. We all value love. We all value mercy. We all value all these sort of ideals. And he says that God is merely all of these values attached to him. God is merely the projection of man. God is merely whatever man's ideals are projected onto a divine being. So he says, theology, the study of God, religion, the worship of God, is nothing more than anthropology. The study of God is reducible to the study of man. God is merely humanity writ large, an idealized version of who you are. And this is why he says in Christianity, God becomes a man, because man creates God in their own image. That's what Feuerbach argued. Christianity, then, is a completely bottom-up religion. Christianity is merely the projection of man unto a divine being, an imaginary divine being, because we need that sort of being. But what we see throughout the Bible, I want to argue for you today, is the complete opposite of that. We have here in Exodus chapter 3, what is clearly stated here is a God who reveals. God comes down. Christianity is not primarily about us speculating about what God must be like. Christianity is not primarily about us speculating and projecting our own ideas onto an imaginary divine being. Christianity says, first of all, that you would never know the true God if God does not come down to call you. Christianity is a top-down approach. It's a top-down religion. It is not a bottom-up projection of yourself. Christianity says you would never know the true God unless God reveals. And we take that for granted in our culture today. You know, in Jakarta, it's amazing to me that unlike in the UK, for example, Jakarans and Indonesians, we all claim to believe in God. It's very rare that you would meet a flat-out atheist who would say, yeah, there is no God, there really isn't. Instead, everywhere you go, everywhere you see, people are teeming in churches, they're all going to temples, they're going to mosques, right? And they all say that they, they know who God is. They all say that God is, God is one, that God is just, God is merciful. I know what God is like. I don't, maybe if some of you know people who claim that they're, they're spiritual but not religious, right? I know what God is like. I know, I know that God is a God of love. God doesn't judge him. God, God is never angry. I don't need to go to your church to know what God is like. I don't need to know the Bible to know what God is like. I know exactly what he's like. I feel him. Or maybe some, you've, heard, you've heard some people say, I, I talk to him. <laughs> Even apart from scripture, that, that you have direct access to God apart from his revealing word, right? And what does Christianity say? You don't get to do that. You don't get to just choose to come to know God. God comes down and comes to meet you. He chooses to reveal himself to you, and he's done that in the Bible. You don't go to him, and don't, don't take that for granted. We do, we so often do. We open our Bibles, right, and we, you know, uh, just uh, get rid of the dust, maybe, right, and we open it, like, oh, of course, I know, I know all these stories. I know about the burning bush. Uh, this is all very familiar to me. I know who Jesus is. I know who Moses is, right? But don't take it for granted. Just think about it. Think about all the human analogies that we can, we can conjure up right now, right? You can have a coffee with somebody, and it could be a business meeting maybe, and you have a three-hour coffee meeting with them, and you talk about exactly what you need to do. You need, you need to talk about the business things that you need to get done, and you can come away from the coffee three hours with that person, and you can say to yourself, that was a good meeting, but I have no idea who that person was. In fact, you know what? You could spend your whole life with somebody. But if that person 
never chooses to be vulnerable to you, you would never know them. Even from a human-to-human -human relationship, friendships depend upon the other person revealing themselves to you for you to truly get to know them, to let you in, to tell you his name, to tell you, you know, what, the things that drive him, that motivate him, the, th the things that, that characterize him or her, right? So in other words, even with a human-to-human -human relationship, you're dependent upon the other person to reveal himself or herself to you for you to get to know them. Now think about a human-to-human -human relationship, not just in a horizontal level where you're you know, with a friend or a business partner or whatever. Think about a human-to-human -human relationship that is with someone who is an authority over you. President Joko Wee, for example. You know, I would love to meet the guy. I would love to meet the president. But if I go over to the Istana, right, and knock on his office and say, President, you know, I want to go grab a cup of coffee. I just love to tell you all my ideas and all the policies that I think would make Jakarta a better place. You know, let's just, or we could just watch a movie. You can hang out. We'll take a few selfies together. I'd be knocked away, right? I would be completely kicked out of there because everybody's going to go, Who th who's this guy? You don't just get to walk up to somebody in authority and choose to get to know them. The reverse has to happen. Joko Wee, President Joko Wee, has to invite you. He summons you, doesn't he? I was watching The Daily Show you know, on Comedy Central. Tanahasi Coates was a, a guest there. He's a journalist. It's a really uh, interesting name indeed, Tanahasi Coates. He's a journalist for uh, The Atlantic, and he was talking about, with Trevor Noah, the host there, Daily Show, he was talking about how a few years ago he wrote an article critiquing Barack Obama. Uh, for the policies, how Barack Obama was acting as a president and all those sort of things. And, you know, he was talking about how he was writing the article. He was feeling all brave behind the laptop, right? He was just critiquing away. And he was talking to Trevor Noah about it, and he says, it's amazing to me because after he wrote that article, Obama summoned him. He says, at first, I thought I could never say this to his face, but then when he came to Obama's presence, he says, I didn't get to talk to Obama before that. He had to summon me, right? And he says, it's all different when you have the person in front of you. And he says, I can't critique him the same way. And of course, Obama's incredibly charismatic, and they meet, and it was amazing that, that his impression of Obama completely changed after he met them. But the point he was trying to communicate again in that, in that, in that interview was, he had to be summoned. He doesn't get to just talk to Obama. He doesn't just get lectured. To, to Obama, right? This is just, he doesn't just get to do that. He has to be summoned to do that. And how much more than Moses right now? In verse 2, it says, right, that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Moses was doing his own thing. He doesn't choose to get God to appear to him. The Lord appeared to him. Verse 4, it says that God called out to him by name, Moses, Moses. Verse 5, it says, don't come any closer. The land, the ground on which you stand is holy ground because God was there. Moses was minding his own business, and God shows up. God reveals himself. Moses doesn't choose God. God chooses him. And that's an amazing thing. And Moses, right, Moses in verse 3 and 4, he says, Oh, I will look at this great sight, why this bush is not burning. You know, Moses is probably a little bit more shocked than that. He wasn't just, what is this great sight to which I must go? You know, he, was, he was amazed at this sight, and he went into his holy ground, God reveals himself. And I want, I want to just challenge you today. This point of God revealing himself may seem like a basic point, but it's not. How do you know that the God you worship, the God that you pray to every night if you do pray, 
the God that you think you speak to, the God that you love, the God that you admire, when you look, take a look at Facebook and you think about all these people who believe in God and you say, I'm, I'm, I believe in God too, how do you know is this is the God that's real? How do you know that the God you've been praying to is not just a God of your own imagination? You're living in Fuhrerbox nightmare, so to speak. How do you know that the God you've been thinking that, that you admire is not merely yourself writ large? This is an amazing admission by Brian Leftow. He's a philosophy professor at the University of Oxford, and he says this in, in one of his books. He says, I give many arguments about God's existence and God's perfection. As I give them, he says, I have a nagging fear that I'm just making stuff up. Our ideas of what it is to be perfect are so inconsistent and flawed. There is no guarantee that they match up with what God's perfection really is. Oxford University professor Brian Leftow, he says that. I, I could write so many books about God, but at the end of the day, he says, I can't tell if I'm just making stuff up. And unless you stand on scripture, how do you know you're not just making stuff up? If you're not reading his word, if you're not going to where he's revealed himself to you, if you're not going to Christ, how do you know you're not just making stuff up? And you go around today and you, you get to see people who say things like, you know, and we, we would say these things to ourselves too. I don't believe a God who just loves to give us rules. You know, the God that they reject is oftentimes not the real God. And you tell them, that's not the God I believe in. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about him. God reveals himself. Worship the true God. Don't reject the false God either. Make sure if you do reject him, reject the real God. And we see an incredible thing here that God doesn't just reveal himself to Moses. God calls Moses by name. And, and in chapter 3, verse 14, right, God is named. He gives us his name. And this is the second point, the God who is named, the God who reveals him, the God who is named. God says to Moses in verse 14, he says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am is his name. I am who I am. And it sounds like a very mystical, kind of mysterious kind of name, right? I was growing up, and I, was, I went to Sunday school. They were talking to me about this, and I had no idea what this meant. But let me just try to demystify this for you, even though it will still remain kind of mysterious, right? Just, just take a look at the context of this, right? Moses asks God, what is his name? Why does Moses ask God that? Because Moses understood, right, that if verses 6 to 10 is true, that if he really is going to go back to Pharaoh, back to Egypt, back to rescue the Israelites out of Pharaoh's grip, he needed to know, on what authority can I go there with? Pharaoh is the most powerful man on earth at this time. He's the most powerful worldly ruler. And he's going to ask, on what authority can I go? On what grounds? Who am I? Right? That's his first inclination. Who am I? What's your name? If I'm going to do this amazing thing, if I'm going to mediate before God and the Israelites, I need to know who it is that I stand for and I stand with. And, and of course, Moses then asks him, his first response is, who am I, Lord, that I should go to Pharaoh, this is verse 11, and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And look at God's answer in verse 12. Look at his initial answer. God answers, I will certainly be with you. This will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Notice when Moses asks God, who am I, Lord, that I should go? God doesn't say, 
But Moses, have you taken a look at your CV yet? You've lived in, his, in, in Egypt for a long time. Moses, you're so eloquent. Moses, you're taller than everybody else. Moses, you are the right man for this job. I'm going to go and I chose you because of all these qualities that you have. Moses, remember who you are. He doesn't do that. God says in verse 12, immediately, he says, I will certainly be with you. Wrong question, in other words, Moses. This isn't about you, Moses. This isn't, this isn't about you being more competent than others. God says, I will be with you. And, and, and the reason why you can stand up to Pharaoh is not because you have an authority, Moses. It's not because you are more powerful than Pharaoh, Moses. It's because I am. And Moses, I think, gets this a little bit, and he says, um, okay, if this is the case, who are you? What is your name? Again, notice, once you encounter God, you don't get to assume what he's like. He tells you what he's like. And look at it, it says, verse 14. And again, so the name of God is grounding his authority. The name of God shows to Moses he can go to Pharaoh and not be afraid. He will be successful, not because of who Moses is, but because of who God is. He says in verse 14, I am who I am. That's absolutely significant. Let me just try to unravel this name a little bit for you. And I think when I do that, the mystery will get even clearer, but at least it will be clear what the mystery is exactly, right? God is the God who is. This name, the I am, I am who I am, means that God is independent. He's absolutely independent, though. Uh, fancy jargon for this is that this is the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity of God. This is his independence. He is the God who is. And what does that mean? What does God's independence mean? It means two things, at least, two things, God's independence. Just bear with me here. Let me get technical for a little bit, right? God's independence means two things. First, that God is self-defining. And second, that God is self-acting. God's independence, his name means that he's self-defining and he's self-acting. We'll just go through that one by one. He's self-defining. He is who he is. In other words, there is no perfect standard outside of God that defines God as God. God, in other words, is not good because there's this standard of goodness outside of him and he meets that criteria. God himself defines what goodness is. God is love not because there's this external standard of love outside of God, and God is love because he meets that standard. God is love because he is love. Maybe an analogy might help. Think about, this is a bit silly, I admit, but think about a ruler. Let's say it's a one-meter ruler, right? Maybe you find a ruler right here in this room, and you wave it around and says, I have a meter. Here it is. Here's a ruler. Here's what you can use to measure what a meter looks like. And then, you know, Tazar, who loves the details, he will, how do you really know that this is a meter long? We need another ruler to determine whether this ruler is really a meter long. And then you go next door, and then you find another ruler. This time it's a plastic ruler, and you measure it up to the wooden ruler that you initially had. And you have two rulers that are exactly the same, one meter long. And then somebody else comes along, and say Ferdy comes along, and he says, I don't know if this is really a meter as well. We need another ruler. And maybe you are so OCD, right? that you need more rulers to, uh, to know, really, whether that initial ruler is really a meter. And then you get all the rulers that you can find in the city, and there's one ruler, maybe a few rulers are, are a centimeter off, or you know, some rules are a little bit different, some are bent. And then you ask the question, how do I know 
which ruler is really a meter long? You know what you need? You need a self-defining ruler. You need an ultimate ruler. You need a ruler that says, once you have this ultimate ruler, you say, I know this is a meter because this is the meter. <laughs> the ruler is the meter. It's a meter because it's a meter. You don't say, I know this is a meter because there's this other ruler who's a meter and they're both the same. You say, this is the ultimate ruler. It defines what it is. It's the definition of what a ruler is. It's the definition of what a meter is like, right? That's what it means to be self-defining. Think about this. God is who he is. I am who I am. God is love because he is love. He, notice, he isn't love because he's shown mercy to a thousand people, as if a mercy to a thousand people defines what love has to be like. He isn't love because he's done something outside of himself to meet the criterion of love. He is love himself. And if you want to know what the standard of love is, the definition of what love is, you don't go and measure God with, a, with an external definition of love. Oh, the God of the Bible doesn't seem loving. You know who's loving? Justin Trudeau from Canada. That's what love looks like. No, you measure Justin Trudeau in light of who God is. You measure yourself in light of who God is. And you don't get to come to the Bible and say, this is what love looks like. And the Bible just doesn't measure up. No, you come to the Bible and you say, if God is the self-defining love, and you have a problem with what you see in the Bible, what you see God is like, then your attitude has to be, I've got a wrong definition of love. You don't get to stand in judgment over God who is self-defining. He defines himself for you. He is who he is. God is self-defining. He's the ultimate. He's not just self-defining. The second thing we need to understand is that God is self-acting. God is self-acting. Acting, what does that mean? In other words, he is the very reason, the ultimate ground, the very ultimate reason why he acts. Right? Why does God choose Moses? Moses' initial answer is what? What is it about me, Lord, that you chose me? Tickle my, my fancies a little bit. Flatter me a little bit, Lord. What is it about me? What qualifies me, Lord? Tell me why you chose me. What does Moses well, Moses is getting, getting it wrong, isn't he? God says, I will be with you. I am who I am. In Exodus chapter 33, later on, we're going to see that same principle being repeated. The Israelites had just worshipped the golden calf. They had sinned against God. And Moses says, please, Lord, do not leave us. And what does God say in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18? He says, he elaborates on his name. He's not just the I am who I am. He says, I will have mercy on who I have mercy and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. I never chose you, Israel, because you're more lovely, because you're better, because you're more intellectual, because you're more powerful than Pharaoh. I chose you because I am the self-acting God. I chose you because I'm not only self-defining, I am who I am, I am the self-acting God. My choice of you is independent of who you are. And that's why, Moses, I will stay with you. It doesn't depend upon how obedient you are. It has never depended upon how good you were to me. My covenant with you is forever. Because its ground is myself and not in you. God is self-defining. God is self-acting. He is the one who 
is. And I want us to see the burning bush in that light, or better yet, the unburning bush, right? Look at uh, verse 2 again. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses saw, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't this bush burning up? And that's when the Lord called out to him. The fire, in other words, was with the bush and the fire was burning. But notice, the fire burned not because of the fuel that came from out of the dry bush. You know, when you light a fire, maybe you have some firewood, the fire is living because it's dependent upon the wood being burnt. Or if it's a bush, right, the fire normally is there. It continues to live. It continues to generate its heat, its fireness, right, from the bush itself. But notice what God is doing here. Why does God show up to Moses in a burning bush, the unburning bush? He's trying to say, Moses, I have come to you just as I've come to this bush. I don't need this bush to be who I am. The fire is self-generating. The fire is the fire. It continues to be the fire apart from the bush and yet chooses to be with the bush. The fire generates itself because it generates itself, in other words. And that is why God shows up to Moses with this sort of fire. Now, this is an incredible thing, friends, that God would do this. God not only reveals himself, God also reveals his name. He's independent, he's self-defining, he's self-acting, he's a standard to which we measure all other things, right? But I want us to remember that this God who reveals that this God was named is also the God who saves. He is the I am who comes down and he saves. And if we take a look very uh, clearly here in uh, chapter three, verse two and four, notice what happens. I want you guys to see this. This is absolutely important. Look at verse 2 again. It says there that the angel of the Lord appeared to him, right? The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Now, when you think angel of the Lord, don't think immediately winged creatures, right? It could mean that, but in this context, I don't think it does. The angel, the word merely means messenger. It could be a winged creature, messenger, an angel, right? Or merely a messenger from God. So the angel of the Lord appeared to him. But look at verse 4. Suddenly, it's not the messenger who calls out to him from the bush. Look at verse 4. It says, The Lord saw that he had gone over to look, and God called out to him. So in verse 4, you have an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord. But in, in, I mean, sorry, in verse 2, you have that. But in verse 4, you have God himself. For some reason, we have here a messenger of God who is God. In verse 2, you have a messenger of the Lord at the bush. And verse 4, it's, it's showing that the Lord himself is calling out to Moses. And verse 5, it says, this is holy ground. You know, a mere angel doesn't create holy ground. This is a messenger of the Lord who is the Lord himself. The messenger that was with God, but was himself God. What does it sound familiar to? We have your identity and difference. In the Gospel of John, it says that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Exodus chapter 3, we have the messenger of the Lord who was with the Lord, but who is 
the Lord himself. We have a little glimpse of the Trinity here. The Son who is God, distinct from God, but who is God himself, a mystery that we can never really penetrate into. What we have here is what? What does the Gospel of John say? I have been with Israel, and now I have come down. In John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus was confronted by the Jews, he says, you don't know me. Before Abraham was, I am. Who was this angel of the Lord who confronted Moses? Who was this who comes down, who takes Israel out of Egypt? Jesus, before he came in the flesh, called out to Moses, and 2,000 years ago, he came truly in the flesh. The great I am who was with Moses, the great I am who was with Abraham, the great I am who was with Jacob, the I am, the God of Israelites' fathers. No longer in a burning bush, but in the flesh, in human flesh. The I am who's self-defining becomes subjected to the definitions of man. The I am who's self-acting becomes subjected to the actions of man. The I am who's unchangeable became changeable in who Jesus Christ is. And the Jews knew that. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, they knew who Jesus was claiming to be. They knew it. Turn your Bibles real quick to John 18, verse 5. This is just a concluding passage I want us to turn to. John 18, verse 5. Jesus was, was waiting in the garden, right? And Judas was coming to him. Judas was coming to betray him with a league of soldiers. I want you guys to see this. John 18, verse 5. Jesus comes to him and a chief of the soldiers. And look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you are seeking? And the soldier says, Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. And look at what Jesus says. I am he, Jesus told them. Now, the word there, I am he, in the English, right? They translated it as I am he because it's awkward. It's awkward because in the original Greek, all it says is ego eimi. And if you knew Greek, that just literally means I am. And look at what happens. Jesus says, I am, not I am he in the original Greek. I am ego eimi. And Judas who betrayed him was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, again, I am, they stepped back and they fell to the ground. The narrator wants you to understand that they fell to the ground. They specifically want you to understand that this ground on which Jesus stood, he is the I am, you were standing on holy ground. And just as Moses could not approach the I am because this was holy ground, neither could Judas and the confronters of Jesus stand before him because he is the great I am. But now, instead of being the sovereign God who calls the Israelites out of Egypt. God himself would die in your place. The I am. He went to the cross, became the mediator who died, took you not out of the hands of Egypt, but out of the hands of sin and Satan yourself, and says, I will die the, die, the death that you should have died, and I will live the life you should have lived. The great I am, self-defining one, came the flesh, Jesus Christ, and died for you and me. Let us never take that for granted. Let's pray.
Father, we're reminded that when we come before you, we stand on holy ground. And just as Moses was told not to come nearer because you, O Lord, are completely other. You are the self-defining, independent, self-acting God. And Jesus, too, was independent, yet he subjected himself. And even though he had all the power to confront and to defend himself before the soldiers, they fell back when you mentioned your own name. You are the Christ, the I Am. You subjected yourself to them, and you died in our place because we needed it. We thank you, Lord God, for your death. We thank you, Lord God, for your life and your resurrection. And may we now stand in ever awe of you, revealed, named, and saving God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.